We're continuing in this series through the Gospel of Mark. I, I continue to encourage you to read through the Gospel of Mark again and again. We turn now to Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Holy Word. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, how we rejoice that You are the God who speaks and You speak life and truth to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You have committed Your Word to Holy Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might be preserved from error, that we might be protected from evil, and so that we might walk in Your ways in the knowledge of You and of Your love and power. So we pray that Your Holy Spirit indeed now would open the eyes of our hearts and grant to us spiritual illumination of mind so that we might behold wondrous things in Your Word, the Word of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Gospel... According to Mark, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to Mark, the Word of God, it is written, Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, and to His name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. But 
Who do you say that I am? New Testament scholars have called this passage the hinge of the gospel according to Mark. It's as though at this point in the gospel, a door swings on its hinge and a new walkway is set before us. It's the turning point in the unfolding story of Jesus's ministry. This is the turning point. But this passage is not only the hinge of the, of the gospel according to Mark, it's the hinge of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our personal lives. Which way does the door swing? How do you answer Jesus' question? Who do you say that I am? Now, that question divides That question divides faith and unbelief. That question divides disciples from the world. That question divides life and death. That question divides heaven and hell. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked them this question because the time had come in his earthly ministry. The time had come to prepare his disciples for what lay ahead. At this point in his ministry, Jesus would turn and head south for Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen there, but the disciples did not have a clue. Now, this turning point in Jesus' ministry took place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's in the far northeast region of Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon. And if you don't know your geography, that's okay, to be perfectly honest. I don't know geography very well, don't know much about geography. All right, but anyway, here's the point. Here's the point. The location, the historical location does matter. Herod the Great had built a marble temple, a temple, mind you, to Caesar Augustus there at the base of Mount Hermon. It had also been a center for the worship of the Canaanite god Baal, Baal, the fertility god of nature. It was also famous for its sanctuary, sanctuary for the worship, worship of the Greek god Pan. You remember the little half man, half goat guy that plays the flute, you know? Remember him? They worshiped him there. So there's Jesus with his disciples in an area where a temple had been built to this supposedly, supposedly, supposedly divine man, you know, divine king, savior. Caesar Augustus. So you have political power structure there. 
Then you have the Baal worship, the fertility god, 21st century American worship going on up there, complete with child sacrifice. And then you have another little nature god of the Greek pantheon. So you have pantheism. See, you got a lot of stuff going on there in that historical context, in that geographical context. So now you've got, you got the Roman Empire, you've got pagan idolatry. It frames Jesus and his disciples as being, listen, clearly in the minority. They're not at home there. They are in the shadow of a hostile political power and foreign religions. That's the kind of context, a context in which we might be the minority or in which we might feel threatened by powers greater than us or in which we might otherwise feel personally insecure. And in that context, and in that context, Jesus might ask us, now, who do you say that I am? Notice how Jesus sets up the question. He first asks a general question. He does not demand a personal answer. Who do people say that I am? And I don't think Jesus was asking to get the poll results. He wasn't asking for his own information. He was leading into the follow-up question, which would demand that the disciples answer that question for themselves, distinguishing themselves from the people in general. But the reports about Jesus, you know, and his mighty works had spread. People in general were talking. They were curious about Jesus. They were quite interested. Some of them were excited about Jesus, and the disciples had heard what was being said. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or one of the prophets. Now, these were pretty good answers. Those people knew their Bible, and they'd been keeping up with the contemporary news pretty well. Pretty good answers. They weren't the correct answer. But they're pretty good answers. Remember, at this point, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. Remember that? So for some to say, as did Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded, to say that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, well, that was to say that Jesus was not someone to be taken lightly. It frightened Herod to think that John the Baptist had come back from the dead. Or Elijah? Elijah was one of the mighty prophets of ancient Israel. He had opposed the idolatrous king Ahab and his wicked pagan queen Jezebel who led the cult of Baal worship up in northern Israel. So it says, oh, there's Jesus again. Maybe he's Elijah coming back to confront the prophets of Baal up there. Elijah was Israel's prophet. Remember this, Elijah was Israel's prophet who did not die a natural physical death on earth. Remember that? But was taken up into heaven in a... You saw the movie? 
chariot of fire. And he was promised by the prophet Malachi to be the forerunner of the Messiah who would return before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. By the way, Jesus identified John the Baptist as the one who, in fact, was Elijah who had come to prepare the way of the Lord. But again, for people to identify Jesus as Elijah returned from heaven, well, that would have been a big deal. That, would, that was quite a significant thing. They knew that Jesus was someone important through whom God was doing a mighty work. Still others said, one of the prophets. In Matthew's account, the prophet Jeremiah is specifically mentioned. It's very interesting because Jeremiah is the prophet through whom God gave the promise of the new covenant. Chapter 31, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So for the people to say that Jesus is John the Baptist, back from the dead, Elijah, returned from heaven, or one of the prophets, specifically Jeremiah, well, that that sounds pretty good. It sounds as though they had a high estimation and a high regard for Jesus. But do you see that these estimations of Jesus, which express high accolades, great respect for Jesus, do you see that they miss the mark completely? Do you see that Jesus did not respond by saying, oh, well, that sounds pretty good. That's, that's, you know, that's okay. They're getting there. That's not what Jesus said. He really rejected these high estimations of himself as being completely insufficient. He certainly didn't want his disciples to agree with the people in general. And so he turned and he asked them the question, but, but, you hear that? But, it's an adversative oppositional, pushback, comeback, intended to clarify the issue and press the point which was at stake. But who do you say that I am? Now, there's the demand for a personal confession of faith. There's the challenge to step over the line. There's the call for commitment of conviction. But who do you say that I am? That's the question which Jesus still poses to each of us today. Who is Jesus? Well, now. Hmm. Today there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is, just as there was in the first century. You will hear various answers in our culture today. Uh, one of the academic answers, or you know, supposed academic answers um, among the unbelieving world is that... Jesus was a, a, Jew, a Jewish peasant who, um, under the guise of religion, was actually leading uh, a subversive rebellion against Rome, and it didn't turn out very well for him. You might hear that in a college classroom, for example. Or in, in, in popular spirituality of today, you know, kind of in the New Age circles, you might hear of Jesus as, a, as a, a remarkable spiritual guru who taught love, peace, and forgiveness. Sounds 
almost. Correct? Or one of the great religious authorities of world history whose teachings greatly influenced Western civilization. It's not too bad. A Jewish prophet who gave us a new vision of God. Or a revolutionary, upstart Jewish rabbi who sought to reform and revamp the established Judaism of his day. And and particularly today, you might hear things such as this in uh, American culture, for example, that he was and is a champion of so-called, the so-called progressive sexual immorality revolution who's really on, you know, leading the, the way there because after all, he said, love one another, and that means anything goes. You hear that. We're going to pray later for the denomination of the United Methodist Church, which is in the throes of that conflict right now, and the name of Jesus Christ is being heralded as a proponent of our culture's sexual immorality revolution. But who do you say that he is? Or you'll hear it also, it's out there. And and by the way, it's been there a long time. It was there when I was in seminary, uh, however long ago that was, 40 years ago, that Jesus really is the champion of Marxist economic revolution. Right. He's our socialist leader, our liberator, our liberator from all things oppressive, which, by the way, that's what's going on in our culture. I'm, I'm aside. I'm off, I'm off my text. But if you wonder what, why everything is so crazy in politics and in theology... It's all part of the long war that's continually going on and, you know, and is expressed in Marxist um, uh, dialectical uh, theory and, and, revo- and revolution. So whatever it is, morality, economics, whatever it is, politics. And, and Jesus is associated with being this great, Marxist leader. And then on the other hand, let us be honest, we might hear an answer that sounds something like, you know, well, Jesus is just, he's our guy. He's red, white, and blue. He's obviously a conservative, just like me and you. And um, he's the one that's going to help us live a happier healthier, wealthier life of the American dream. But who do you say that he is? Because none of those answers will do. Because it will not do to say that Jesus was just another prophet, another religious teacher, or even the greatest human being who ever lived. Jesus himself did not accept that answer. 
He pressed his disciples for a different answer. And Peter, representing all the disciples, answered with this first confession of faith. You are the Christ. Matthew records this confession of faith as you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Finally, Finally, after having been with Jesus so long, after seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, after hearing his teaching with authority time and again, Peter and the original disciples have their eyes opened. Their blindness is healed. They see Jesus for who he is, and they know who Jesus is. Well, almost. Because, in fact, their vision was still blurred. Peter gave the right answer. You are the Christ. But he and the other disciples did not have a right understanding about what that meant. His correct answer needed to be corrected. When Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah... He had in mind visions of earthly victory, power, and glory. Name it and claim it. We got it made. Jesus is on our side. He had in mind, most likely, that Jesus would soon reveal himself as the great military liberator of the Jews who would overthrow Rome and cleanse the land of Israel from Gentile defilement, and the kingdom of God would come. And so Peter was completely confused when Jesus at that point began to teach them, at that point, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark tells us that Jesus said this plainly. Peter would not hear of it. No. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now get a, get a, get a picture of that. Peter began to rebuke the one who had rebuked the wind, and the waves. Hmm. Peter began to rebuke the one who had cast out demons with a word, healed the sick, and raised the dead. Peter rebuked Jesus because he didn't want to accept what Jesus was telling him. How often do we see ourselves in Peter when we argue with Jesus and his word? When Jesus here referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was referring to the divine human figure prophesied in Daniel 7, to whom would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus was referring to himself as that one son of man. Yes, there would be victory. Yes, there would be glory. Yes, there would be an everlasting kingdom. But what Peter and the other disciples did not understand was that the way to that victory, the way to that glory, and the way to that everlasting kingdom would be the way of suffering 
and sacrifice. In his understanding of himself as the Christ, the Messiah, the Spirit-anointed, divinely appointed Savior King, Jesus understood himself to be both the victorious Son of Man to whom would be given the everlasting kingdom and also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would be despised and rejected by men, smitten by God and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was telling Peter and the other disciples that before he could be revealed, before he would be revealed as the victorious Christ, he must first fulfill his role as the suffering servant, Savior. His way to glory was the way of the cross. His way to everlasting life was the way through death and hell. This is what Peter could not bear to contemplate. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus turned and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, just as Satan had done when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, so Peter was doing at this moment. You see, Peter was suggesting, or Peter was demanding, that there was a way for Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God, to exercise his power as the Son of God, to enter into his glory as the Son of God without suffering, without humbling himself in obedience to his Father's will, without enduring the cross. This was exactly the temptation which Satan laid before Jesus in the wilderness. It is also, by the way, the temptation which Jesus faced finally in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, this is the hinge of the gospel according to Mark because at this point, Jesus begins to teach his disciples repeatedly over and over again that he must go. It is necessary. That's really what the Greek text says. It is necessary that he go to Jerusalem and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. From this point onward, Jesus is, quote, on the way, on the road to Jerusalem, and his disciples are called to follow him. But it's also the hinge of the gospel in our personal lives because it teaches us that when we give the correct answer, and we all know the correct answer, we know the answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That correct answer has consequences for our lives. The correct answer, you are the Christ, cannot be given merely with our lips. It must be given with our lives. Because we are confessing the Christ who came as the suffering servant, 
who humbled himself to do his Father's will and to suffer the wrath of God in our place, to bear in his own body our sins upon the tree, to taste death for us under that condemnation of God which we deserve so that we, through faith in Him, might receive everlasting life in His eternal kingdom of glory. But there's no way around the cross. We follow the Christ of the cross And to confess true faith in Jesus Christ is to be called to follow Him in His way. The way of the cross. Now this becomes clear in this passage. Jesus reveals to His disciples who He is. The Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the suffering servant, Savior, who would die on the cross for the sins of His people and rise again to open heaven's glory to us. There's only one way to share in his eternal victory and his everlasting life, and it is this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, brothers and sisters, now... The consequences of confession become clear. This is what it means to confess faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, your Savior. It means to lay your life down before Him. To give your life over to Him. To surrender the throne of your life to His Lordship to submit your life to Him as your master. It is, brothers and sisters, to die in order to be made alive in Him. This is Christian self-denial. And it has real practical consequences. No longer living with yourself as the Lord of your life in which you get to tell yourself what you get to do. Serving your own self-interest and seeking to do only that which is pleasing to you and which serves your purposes for your own earthly power and glory. And by the way, not everything about that is totally bad. But it's just who's the center of your life? That's the issue. Who's the center of your life? Who is the guide of your life? It's one of two people. It's Jesus Christ or it's you. This is what it means to take up your cross. It means to die, to crucify all the selfish impulses of your own will so that you are free to follow Jesus and seek to do his will on the way to his everlasting kingdom in everlasting glory because 
He endured the cross for you. In his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by the Nazis, wrote this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. By that, Bonhoeffer meant that Christ calls us to die to our own will, die to our self-centeredness, die to our pride, die to our agenda, put to death the insidious notion that we are the lords of our own lives. Because, he wrote, only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. There is no other way to follow Jesus than by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and dying daily. But with this call to costly discipleship, Jesus also gives a promise. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Yes, yes. There is an eternal kingdom. Yes, there is a glory which far outweighs all the suffering in this world. Yes, there is a life which death cannot extinguish. But that kingdom and that glory and that everlasting life is given only to those who give up their lives to Jesus Christ and follow him. And the converse, the opposite is true as well. And we must take seriously that Jesus has warned us. What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In that light, we must answer Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Dear brothers and sisters, the correct answer must be given not only with our lips, but with our lives. To God be the glory. Amen. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that Jesus is our great Savior. Help us to lay hold of Him by faith. And giving up ourselves into your goodness, power, wisdom, and love, let us follow Him. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, all the days of our life, to the glory of your name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism, number one. Christian.
What is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of His own precious blood, He has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit His purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him. Amen.